tension. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Good afternoon, y'all. Welcome to The Valley Labor Report. Appreciate y'all joining us this afternoon. I know it's a little bit of a different time slot, so... I know some folks may be joining later, but I appreciate everyone who is tuning in and everyone listening later as a podcast. My name is Adam Keller, and this is the Valley Labor Report. That's Alabama's only union talk radio show. And this is Shop Talk, our new Thursday morning, typically Thursday morning episode uh, that we're producing every week with a focus on labor education, history, and training. It's Thursday, April 6th. And we're broadcasting live from Spice Radio Studio in the heart of the Tennessee Valley in Huntsville, Alabama. Every episode is live streamed on YouTube and Facebook and is released on your favorite podcasting platform in the coming days. So I appreciate everyone tuning in. As I said, this is a little bit different today. Uh, Had to change the schedule a little bit. Uh, typically, we broadcast shop, shop Talk on Thursday mornings, but I had to work this morning with my IATSE kin at the uh, concert hall in Huntsville, so we had to adjust the schedule. Hopefully, next week, we'll be right back in a Thursday morning time slot. That seems to be the best time slot. And uh, But if you have any suggestions, if you have any feedback about you know what time really you prefer, uh, certainly let us know. I know many of you listen later and do not catch the live broadcast. So uh, just any feedback you have about that, we really appreciate it. So today on the show, we're going to talk some labor history with April anniversaries in labor and social justice history, along with a segment on two Alabama towns that were created by the Knights of Labor. And that was actually a guest suggested topic, uh, and I'll get to that momentarily, but uh that's a good good reason to suggest topics because we will absolutely uh, look into it. Really appreciate the idea. Just a reminder that the Valley Labor Report is a working class media collective dedicated to lifting up labor struggles throughout Alabama and across the South. We bring you Alabama's only union talk radio show every Saturday morning with the first half from 9.30 to 11 a.m. live on FM radio through WVNN here in, in the Huntsville listening area. The entire program is online via Facebook, YouTube, and podcast, and portions of the program are replayed on WZZA in the Shoals and WHIV out of New Orleans. Really appreciate our radio partners. We encourage you to check out our website, tvlr.fm, which we are currently expanding to feature regularly published articles, including news and commentary relevant to working people, especially working people in the South. You can also check out our merch at tvlr.fm store. Uh, we've got some really cool shirts still available. 
Highly recommend you check that out. And of course, it is all union made, union made t-shirts. Uh, we really believe in that. We try to shop union and buy union. Our website is a union vendor. Our payment processor is a union vendor. Uh, and our merch comes from unions. So that's what we believe in and we try to practice what we preach. Finally, we rely on donations and sponsorships to put out all of this free content. Uh, we appreciate the local unions and organizations that have sponsored ads on our main Saturday show. We're looking for sponsors for overtime and for shop talk. Uh, I'm excited that I'm finalizing the details on our very first shop talk sponsor, but we still need a couple more to sustain the series for the long haul. Uh, beyond unions and allied organizations, we're also interested in other media outlets, union print shops and vendors, uh, publishers, anyone who might be interested in reaching an audience of union activists and allies. So please hit us up if you have any ideas for sponsors or if you're interested in your organization becoming a sponsor. As much as we love and appreciate our sponsors, our single biggest source of contributions comes from listener donations. You can make a one-time donation or a recurring donation at tvlr.fm donate. We also have a Patreon if you prefer to donate that way. And we'll even take a good old-fashioned check mailed to our P.O. box. Whether you donate, share, subscribe, or just listen, we appreciate your support and we can't do it without you. We put out all of this content for free because we are dedicated to growing the Southern labor movement. If you share this mission, please support however you can so that we can have media of, by, and for the working class. Now, with that introduction out of the way, I do want to update folks a little bit about the series. So Shop Talk has been on the air now for a little over a month. We've explored the Walker County, Alabama educator strike of 1979. We interviewed Joe Demanuel Hall from Labor Notes about Stewards Corner and the other resources that Labor Notes provides for stewards and union activists. Uh, did an episode dedicated to answering the question of how to get involved as a new member. Uh, and that's one of those episodes that I really hope uh, is evergreen and is something that people can come back to, uh, you know, month after month. Whenever you have new members, definitely check out, check that out, share that with new members. If you are new, take a listen. Uh, but if you're a steward, if you're an officer, if you are involved in your union already, uh, you may want some ideas about how to engage those new folks. And so uh, definitely take a listen to that. And last week, I uh, was really honored to speak with Max Frazier. He's a writer and professor. And we talked about his work studying the working class. And I uh, just have to say that I was very, very under the weather last week. I uh, was struggling mightily to do last week's episode of Shop Talk. So really appreciate Max Frazier being a great guest. Um, he just took it away and I couldn't have pulled it off without him. If you've missed any of these episodes, you can go back and check the podcast feed or the uh, live streams on YouTube. We hope this is useful and educational content that folks will continue to come back to long after the debut and that folks will want to share with their friends and union members. We've had some great suggestions so far on topics and guests for Shop Talk, so please keep those coming. We think it's important to know our heritage as working people 
especially here in the South, which is why labor history is a focus of the series. And we know there's always a need for more education and training in our labor movement. So this is an investment in our time and resources to produce Shop Talk, but we think it's a worthy investment and hope y'all do too. So no guests today. Uh, Today's episode will be on the shorter side. I'm going to look first at the April Labor and Social Justice History Anniversaries, followed by a look at two Alabama towns that were founded by unions. So it's time to share some of the April anniversaries in labor history and the long fight for justice. I compiled this information primarily from the 2022-23 edition of Planning to Change the World, a planned book for social justice educators. This excellent planner is published by the Education for Liberation Network, and I want to make sure I give them full credit. Shout out as well to the Zen Education Project, which is another great resource. Uh, Check out their This Day in History, hashtag TDIH post on social media. Uh, You can also find it on their website as well. So with that out of the way, let's get started. April 1st is the first day of Arab American Heritage Month. It's also the first day of National Poetry Month, and it is also the first day of Sexual Assault Awareness Month. April 1st is also the 40th anniversary of the Solid Waste and the Black Houston Community Report. This was the very first comprehensive account of environmental racism in the United States. Dr. Robert Bullard, known as the father of environmental justice, documented that although Black people comprise only 25% of Houston's population, all five city-owned garbage dumps, 80% of city-owned garbage incinerators, and 75% of privately-owned landfills were located in Black neighborhoods. This obviously exposed these populations to toxic waste and fumes and made them more vulnerable to serious health issues. And I had a chance to attend a presentation by Dr. Bullard at the Climate Reality Project's Gulf Climate Summit back in the fall in October uh, out in Houston. And I got to say, it was a real treat. He was a fantastic presenter. Uh, If you're not familiar with Dr. Robert Bullard's work, highly recommend you check him out. April 2nd is World Autism Awareness Day, which was declared by the United Nations General Assembly to highlight the need to help improve the quality of life of those with autism so they can lead full and meaningful lives as an integral part of society. April 2nd is also the 160th anniversary of the Richmond Bread Riots. In the second year of the American Civil War, hundreds of women stormed the governor's mansion in Richmond, Virginia, demanding action on the scarcity of food for civilians in the city. The women looted and ransacked food stores, warehouses, and businesses. Union commanders viewed the riot as a victory, a sign that the Confederate war was increasingly unpopular even among white people in the South. On April 3, 1954, UAW Local 833 went on strike against the Kohler Bathroom Fixtures Company in Kohler, Wisconsin. The strike ended six years later after Kohler was found guilty of refusing to bargain, and he agreed to reinstate 1,400 strikers and pay them $4.5 million in back pay and pension credits. 
April 3rd is the 110th anniversary of Emmeline Pankhurst's final prison sentence. British suffragette Emmeline Pankhurst, who founded the Women's Franchise League and the Militant Women's Social and Political Union, received her final prison sentence of three years penal servitude for inciting to the malicious destruction of property for planning to plant an explosive device in a building. Pankhurst believed attacks on property were a legitimate tactic in the cause of universal suffrage. She was, she was released a few days into her sentence after staging a hunger strike. Fifty-five years ago, on April 4th, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, where he was present to support striking sanitation workers. In the wake of this tragedy, riots broke out in many cities across the country, and it's always a good time to remember the legacy of Dr. King, who was a champion not just for human rights and civil rights, but for labor rights as well. April 9th is the 60th anniversary of the arrest and beating of Fannie Lou Hamer in Mississippi. Hamer and other civil rights activists rode in the so-called white section of a Greyhound bus from South Carolina to Mississippi and sat at the whites-only lunch counter at the Winona bus depot prompting the local police chief to arrest them. White officers at the jail ordered black inmates to beat Hamer with loaded blackjacks. She never fully recovered from the attack, losing vision in one eye and suffering permanent kidney damage. 125 years ago, on April 9th, African-American actor and singer Paul Robeson was born in Princeton, New Jersey. He was a true Renaissance man. An acclaimed athlete, actor, singer, cultural scholar, author, lawyer, and internationally renowned political activist. Best known for his performance in The Emperor Jones, he also enjoyed a long run in Broadway, uh, where he played Othello. In 1950, amid ongoing anti-communist hysteria, Robeson was denied a U.S. passport after refusing to sign an affidavit on whether he had ever been a member of the Communist Party. His testimony before the House on American Activities Committee remains an inspiration. Uh, if you ever want to get fired up, take a listen. I believe you can find uh, you can find a recreation of that hearing on YouTube. April 11th is the 30th anniversary of the Lucasville Prison Uprising. Hundreds of prisoners at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility in Lucasville took over the prison in a rebellion sparked by overcrowding, poor conditions, and for some, the fact that tuberculosis vaccinations would become mandatory. On the first day, five inmates were killed by the rioters. Four more inmates were killed over the next several days. One guard was also killed. On April 21st, an officials finally agreed to review the prisoners' 21 demands the prisoners surrendered. I'm going to take a moment here to, to note that Alabama's system of incarceration has been found to be unconstitutional. And just last year, uh, prisoners in Alabama, incarcerated workers, went on strike throughout the state. And as I speak, the legislature is in session debating new plans to build mega prisons, and yet no real plans to end the cruel and horrific and shameful system of mass incarceration in this state. 
April 11, 1968, a week after the assassination of Dr. King, the Civil Rights Act of 1968 was signed into law by President LBJ, Lyndon B. Johnson. The law prohibited discrimination in housing, protected civil rights workers, and expanded the rights of Native Americans. April 12th is also the 60th anniversary of the arrest of Dr. King and peaceful protesters in Birmingham, Alabama. Police Commissioner Bull Connor, a notorious segregationist with ties to the Ku Klux Klan, commanded patrolmen to surround a large crowd of peaceful civil rights marchers and ordered violent mass arrests. Dr. King, along with 55 other protesters marching for freedom, was jailed for several days on emergency injunctions forbidding so-called racial protest in Birmingham. Of course, this is when Dr. King penned his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, which is a must-read for anyone interested in progress in America. April 13th is the 150th anniversary of the Colfax Massacre in Louisiana. Enraged that a Republican with strong support of black voters had won election as governor, a mob of 300 white supremacists stormed the county courthouse where black state militia members stood guard. An all-out attack on black men ensued, including against many who hadn't even been present at the courthouse. An estimated 150 black men were murdered. About 100 white men were arrested and charged, but only three were convicted, and their convictions were actually overturned two years later. A much happier anniversary is also on April 13th, but in 1903, the International Hod Carriers and Building Laborers Union was founded. As 25 delegates from 23 local unions across 17 cities, representing 8,186 laborers, met in Washington, D.C. This is now known as the Laborers International Union. April 14th is the National Day of Silence, a project of the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network. This is typically a day where students organize protests against LGBTQ harassment in schools. April 18th is Holocaust Remembrance Day, and April 19th is the 80th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto in German-occupied Poland during World War II fought back against the Nazi efforts to transport the remaining ghetto population to the Treblinka extermination camp. The resistors managed to hold off the stronger, much better equipped Nazis for nearly a month. An estimated 7,000 Jews died in the battle. The remaining 50,000 were deported to Treblinka to be murdered. It was considered the largest revolt by the Jews during the Holocaust. April 21st is the 40th anniversary of the Triana, Alabama legal settlement. The EPA, the Department of Justice, and the Olin Corporation settled a $24 million lawsuit filed by residents of Triana, Alabama. The small African-American community here, right here in the Huntsville area was contaminated with DDT, which is a toxic chemical from a nearby army base. The settlement covered cleanup costs and medical expenses, marking the very first time an EPA enforcement action provided health care for an affected community. As I've learned more about the environmental damage 
inflicted upon working class communities across this country in places like Cancer Alley in Louisiana, places like Houston. It's clear that there's so much more work to be done and the EPA as it currently exists is not equipped and not funded adequately to address the sorts of needs that we really have in our communities. April 22nd is Earth Day, an annual event celebrated in 175 countries to raise awareness about environmental issues. According to the Earth Day Network, it is the largest secular civic event in the world. As we face the existential crisis of climate change and environmental destruction, it's critical that the environmental movement and the labor movement work in coalition to save our habitat for working-class people now and in the future. April 23rd is the 60th anniversary of the murder of William Lewis Moore. William Moore was a postal worker who attempted to walk 400 miles to protest racial injustice. The activist hoped to deliver a letter to Governor Ross Barnett of Mississippi at the end of his march. However, he was murdered and left by the side of the road before he made it to his destination. No one was charged for his murder, but Floyd Simpson, a member of the KKK, was a key suspect. Miles Johnson for NPR did a great piece some time back that I highly recommend entitled A Postman's 1963 Walk for Justice Cut Short on an Alabama Road. April 26, 1944, federal troops seized the Chicago offices of the Montgomery Ward Company and removed its chairman after his refusal to obey President Roosevelt's order to recognize a CIO union. The seizure ended when unions won an election to represent the company's workers. Roosevelt issued a stern warning to labor unions and industry management alike, saying, quote, Strikes in wartime cannot be condoned, whether they are strikes by workers against their employers or strikes by employers against their government. Now, while obviously the goal was to maintain labor peace during World War II, it's almost hard to imagine our federal government exercising that kind of accountability over corporations today. Could, could you imagine that? Could you imagine Howard Schultz or Jeff Bezos dethroned for their just despicable union busting? It's an interesting thought. April 27th is the 70th anniversary of the Executive Order 10450. Executive Order 10450 gave the heads of federal agencies the power to investigate whether federal employees posed a so-called security risk. One consequence of this was that the federal government was able to ban the employment of LGBTQ people with the excuse that a federal, gover federal government employee could be blackmailed because of their sexuality the federal government targeted gays and lesbians in what became known as the Lavender Scare, which occurred as suspected radicals were targeted by the Red Scare. April 28th is Workers' Memorial Day. On April 28th, the labor movement observes Worker Memorial Day to remember workers killed, injured, or made ill on the job, and to renew the fight for strong safety and health protections. More than 50 years ago, on April 28th, the Occupational Safety and Health Act went into effect, 
promising every worker the right to a safe job, a fundamental right. The law was won because of the tireless efforts of the labor movement, which organized for safer working conditions and demanded action from the government to protect working people. Since then, unions and our allies have fought hard to make that promise a reality, winning protections that have made jobs safer and saved lives. But our work is not done. Each year, thousands of workers are killed and millions more suffer injury and illness because of dangerous working conditions that are preventable. April 30th is the 60th anniversary of the Bristol bus boycott. The Bristol Omnibus Company in Bristol, England, refused to employ black bus drivers despite a labor shortage at the time. This discrimination sparked a boycott of the bus company that was led and organized by a group of West Indians. Though the four-month boycott obviously did not end racial tensions or discrimination, the group was successful in getting the company to reverse its hiring policy in August 1963. And if you're an educator, I want to point you to Facing History's unit on Standing Up for Democracy, which explores the strategies used in this 1963 Bristol bus boycott and how we can apply them to make changes in our schools and our communities. So that's it for April's Labor and Social Justice Anniversaries. Thanks again to the Zen Education Project and the 2022-23 edition of Planning to Change the World, a plan book for social justice educators. For this next segment, first of all, I have to shout out Free American 2020, who is a frequent listener and commenter. I checked the comments on a previous episode of Shop Talk, and they suggested I look into Powderly, Alabama, as it was founded by the Knights of Labor. And I have to confess, I was not familiar with Powderly at all, uh, much less its union connection. I'm originally from Meridian, Mississippi, and I've spent the last 20 plus years or so in North Alabama. So I've been to Birmingham plenty of times, but I'm not really up on all my Birmingham neighborhoods. And for just for the record, Powderly is in southwest Birmingham. According to the Beham Wiki, Powderly was first developed in 1887 as a community of low-cost workers' houses by the Beneficial Land and Improvement Company, headed by members of the Knights of Labor. The nearby community of Travelick was developed simultaneously, and the communities were named for Terence Powderly and Richard Travelick, two of the Knights' national leaders. Members of the Knights of Labor, primarily miners, purchased shares in the new community, and in and in its first industrial development, the Powderly Cooperative Cigar Works. The Birmingham Powderly and Bessemer Railroad began passenger service to the new community in 1888. The original Trevelick lots were 50 feet wide by 120 feet deep and were sold only to members in good standing. Lot owners received stock in the development company, which organized neighborhood businesses as cooperative ventures. Now, if you're involved in the labor movement, and if you're listening to me, you probably are, you've probably noticed that there's no Knights of Labor around anymore. You don't see, you don't see the Knights of Labor. 
uh, though you may recall them from your history class. Uh, next, I'm going to pull from Knights of Labor in Alabama, which is an article in the Encyclopedia of Alabama by Matthew Hild of the Georgia Institute of Technology. During the last quarter of the 19th century, as many as three million Americans joined the Noble and Holy Order of the Knights of Labor, the KOL. At its peak in 1886, the KOL had between 700,000 and 1 million members, making it the largest labor organization in U.S. history to that point. In Alabama, KOL membership peaked at some 5,600 in late 1887, and despite a rather turbulent history that saw the organization collapse and resurrect itself several times, the KOL ultimately remained active and significant in Alabama longer than in most other states. Organizing workers regardless of skill, race, with the exception of the Chinese, or gender, the KOL not only provided Alabamians with an outlet for pro protesting long hours, low wages, and the convict lease system, but also played a significant role in launching the populist movement of the 1890s. Formed in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia in 1869, the Knights of Labor appointed its first Southern organizers nine years later, including Edward S. Marshall of Montgomery and Michael F. Moran of uh, Helena. By the end of 1878, the KOL had chartered six local assemblies in Alabama, including two in Mobile and two in Helena, where most members were coal miners. As of May 1880, the KOL had 19 local assemblies and as many as 700 members in the state. During this period, the organization became particularly active in Jefferson County, where many members, white and black alike, were coal miners and active in the Greenback Labor Party. The Alabama Knights of Labor declined, along with the Greenback Labor Party, in the early 1880s, but entered a period of significant growth in 1885 that coincided with the comparable time of national growth during labor's great upheaval a period during the mid-1880s of strikes and related violence. At that time, Knights of Labor membership in Alabama included coal miners, dry goods salesmen, woodworkers, machinists, cotton mill workers, iron workers, lumbermen, and farmers and farmhands. Both women and African Americans joined the ranks of Alabama Knights, but the latter were usually organized into all-black local assemblies. Between 1885 and 1888, the Knights of Labor led a number of strikes in Alabama, mostly among coal miners, who struck against wage cuts, the use of convict labor, and the hiring of migrant Italian miners. The Knights of Labor also waged boycotts in response to firings or lockouts of workers who belonged to the organization, but managed only limited success in these battles. The organization also formed a number of cooperative Knights-owned enterprises in Alabama during this period, including a real estate company and a cigar works. The success of these ventures led the organization to establish two cooperative towns, Powderly and Trevely, in honor of two of the organization's nat national leaders, Terrence V. Powderly and Richard Trevely, respectively. The first of these communities, Powderly, outlived the KOL and is still part of Birmingham today. 
In addition, the Knights of Labor joined with other labor and farmer groups in forming the Alabama Union Labor Party in 1887 and the Labor Party of Alabama one year later. These parties won some local elections. Knights of Labor's state lecturer E.S. Starr became the mayor of Selma in 1889 and helped pave the way for the Populist Party of the 1890s. By 1889, however, the Knights of Labor began to deteriorate in Alabama and across the nation. Unsuccessful minor strikes, competition with trade unions affiliated with the newly formed AFL, American Federation of Labor, and internal strife within Knights of Labor ranks all contributed to the organization's demise in Alabama. The KOL still maintained enough significance in 1892 to help launch the Alabama Populist Party, but by the time large strikes broke out among coal miners and railroad workers in 1894, the KOL had been almost completely eclipsed by other unions. In 1898, as the nation's economy finally began to recover from the economic panic of 1893, and Alabama's mining and lumber industries rebounded, the KOL began a remarkable resurgence in the state. At a time when national membership had fallen to somewhere in the range of 20,000 to 50,000 individuals, the Knights of Labor had about 5,000 members in Alabama by 1900. The organization's successes during this period included an agreement with a lumber mill in Bruton in 1899 that gave workers a 25% raise and forced the company to pay workers in cash, rather than script redeemable only at the company store. But by mid-1901, falling timber prices began eroding the Knights of Labor's bargaining power in that industry. And familiar problems such as internal and racial strife within the organization and quarrels with other unions weakened the Knights of Labor throughout the state. After 1902, the KOL began to decline in Alabama once again although it remained active in the state until at least 1908. Despite its up-and-down existence and ultimate collapse, the KOL nevertheless left a significant legacy in Alabama. It played a pioneering role in organizing workers, leading strikes and boycotts, lobbying for the eradication of the convict lease system as early as 1886, and fostering unity between industrial workers and farmers. The Alabama State Federation of Labor, formed in 1900, carried many of the Knights of Labor's battles into the 20th century, playing an active role in politics, helping to get the convict lease system abolished in 1928, and occasionally collaborating with the Alabama Farmers Union to fight for economic and social justice for working-class Alabamians. So I really recommend you check out the article online at the Encyclopedia of Alabama for more suggested resources if you're interested. Uh, there was not a ton available from my little bit of research on this. Um, I'm going to call this more of a preview of Powderly and its union story rather than a deep dive. Um, there's a lot there that I'm interested in. Uh, I know personally, I'm really interested in learning more about these cooperative towns and cooperative businesses that they set up. Uh, I think that's fascinating, and I'm looking forward to researching more and, and learning more about those topics. Um, I think it could be something that we could really learn from. You know, obviously, the American labor movement has learned from some of the Knights of Labor's flaws and mistakes, but we could also stand to learn more about some of these tactics 
that could empower working class people. So that's a little bit about Powderly, Alabama, a town founded by the Knights of Labor, a true union town from the get-go. Uh, so when folks talk about Birmingham, it's worth remembering Birmingham is a union town in many ways. Uh, and in fact, one of its very own neighborhoods was literally a union town started by unions for union members, uh, which I find really fascinating and I think it's very cool, and, and I really appreciate Free American 2020 for the suggestion. Uh, great idea. So looking forward to learning more about this. Uh, I have no doubt I will be doing a little bit more reading. And uh, anything that y'all learn about this topic, please let me know. Uh, because I am a big fan of co-ops. I find them interesting. I find them powerful. And anything I can learn about these co-ops that existed right here in Alabama... Uh, I find really interesting. As I wrap things up this afternoon, I do want to mention some excellent upcoming training opportunities from Labor Notes. Their upcoming stewards workshop, workshop is called Assertive Grievance Handling. This workshop will be held on Wednesday, April 19th and will run from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Central Time. This is an online workshop and will be held via Zoom. The workshop is intended for stewards and elected officers who work closely with stewards. So please register if this applies to you. Fighting grievances isn't only about how well you argue your case. It's also about organizing members to build pressure on management. This workshop will focus on how to win creatively without going to arbitration, or sometimes without even filing a grievance. Join Labor Notes for this online workshop for shop stewards on supercharging your grievances. Hear from stewards about how they've used grievances to organize their coworkers, and talk with other labor activists about how to handle sticky situations. Registration is $10, but no one will be turned away for lack of funds. You can register online at labornotes.org. Really looking forward to that session. Next month in May... Labor Notes is offering, uh, once again, this workshop, which I really recommend. It's called What to Do When Your Union Breaks Your Heart. This workshop will be held on Tuesday, May 2nd, and will run from 6.30 to 8 p.m. Central Time. It's an online workshop through Zoom. If you're a union member, unfortunately, the chances are good that you've had or will have your heart broken at least once by one of your own leaders. Whether you tried to get involved and there was nowhere to go, or the members got sold out, or leaders want to keep the union as their exclusive club, it can feel pretty harsh. In this workshop, we'll talk about how to recommit to your union and change the culture into one where leaders respect and serve the members. This workshop is based on an article by Ellen uh, David Friedman, and she will be leading the workshop. And important to note, this workshop is offered pretty much every month. So if you can't make it to this one on uh, May 2nd, stay tuned. It should be offered again. You'll be able to check that out. Registration is free for this session. Uh, so it's one of those that I hope doesn't apply to you. Uh, I hope you haven't had a broken heart over your union. Uh, but it's, it's very good information to know because, unfortunately, unions are institutions Institutions have flaws, and institutions are run by humans with flaws. 
and so I think that's a really powerful workshop and, and something I highly recommend for folks, especially if you've had some issues in the past or some concerns about your union. And finally, with Labor Notes, they are offering their Secrets of a Successful Organizer workshop series. Uh, that will be next month in May on Wednesdays from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Central Time. That's May 3rd, 10th, and 17th. They ask that you attend all three workshops in the series. These workshops are based on their widely acclaimed book, Secrets of a Successful Organizer, which I highly recommend. Uh, again, these trainings are online via Zoom. Once you register, you'll get a link to the Zoom. Uh, they'll send emails weekly with links to the sessions on the day of the event. So be sure to check your email folders so you can get uh, plugged in there. The cost is only $15 for the whole series. That includes access to all workshops until a space is filled. No one will be turned away due to lack of funds. And they're also offering registration plus 50% off a one-year subscription to Labor Notes magazine for only $30. So here are the sessions in the Secrets of a Successful Organizer workshop series. First is beating apathy. Are you beating your head against the wall trying to get other workers involved? This workshop is for you. Hear success stories from those who've turned their workplaces around and turned apathy into action. Learn practical organizing tools for engaging your coworkers, taking action, and getting results. Session two is assembling your dream team. Your workplace may feel like an unorganized mess, but the truth is you're not starting from zero. There's organization there already, though it might have nothing to do with your union. Learn how to map out the existing networks in your workplace, identify the leaders in those networks, and then knit them together into an organizing committee. Turning an issue into a campaign is the third and final session of the month. Everybody has complaints and frustrations, but an organizer has the power to turn problems into opportunities. Learn how to sort through the issues you hear from coworkers, bring people together, and make a plan to solve them. So that's the secrets of, of a successful organizer series uh, in May offered by Labor Notes. All of these opportunities you can find at labornotes.org slash events. Uh, wonderful training opportunities. So if you are new to the union or if you're newly elected into a role in your union, or if you're not even in a union, but maybe you're into community organizing and community activism, I feel certain you can take something away from these workshops. So highly recommend that. And that's it for the fifth episode of Shop Talk. I hope it was worth your time, and I really appreciate everyone listening. If you enjoyed it, please share with your network and make sure you're plugged into our work. Stay tuned to the Valley Labor Report on Saturday morning, starting at 9.30 a.m. Central, live on WVNN, YouTube, and Facebook. And also want to mention to check out the April 6th episode of America's Workforce Radio, where yours truly was a featured guest. Please sign up for an, uh, our email list at tvlr.fm, and don't forget to like, review, share, and subscribe. And finally, if you share our mission to grow the Southern labor movement, if you share our belief in the power of solidarity and collective organization, you want media that is for working people, by working people, 
please consider becoming a recurring donor at tvlr.fm donate. All power to the workers. Solidarity, y'all.